Um, Mark chapter 3, we are in our third uh, session, third, uh, oh, I need to mention my mum and dad are here, so I need to be on my best behavior, which all of you know, that's, you know, judging by how things normally go, sorry mum in advance. Um, she's, she's quite small, but she can still reach my ear. Um, Mark chapter 3, we are working through uh, the book of Mark. We're taking a chapter each week, and I highly recommend that you download the previous messages and catch up. I've encouraged you all to read the book of Mark in its entirety, 16 chapters. You could sit down and read it probably in half an hour, three quarters of an hour. And then also to read a chapter per week. And we also, for added bonus, for those that are really keen, you can uh, look at the front of the bulletin and you will find a memory verse right there that you can, uh, you can memorize. And then we're going to have a memory verse competition in 16 weeks. Some of you perked up and thought, yes, count me in. Many of you went, oh no. Which day is that? No, I'm joking. We're not going to have the competition, but I highly recommend that you do just memorize that verse, and uh, it's, it's a good thing to memorize the Word of God. And I've also encouraged you to bring your Bible each week, your journal each week. We're going to be going quick. We're going to work through this chapter. There are some nuggets in here that I know will bless you, and I know will encourage you, uh, especially if you're feeling stressed or under pressure this week. This chapter is for you. One of my uh, favorite things about growing up was that we always had a dog in the house. And uh, yes, always. My mom especially and my dad love, love to have dogs. And we, I've got many, many stories. But my favorite dog was actually uh, the dog that Sarah and I had when we were pastoring in North Wales. And his name was Jed. And I would walk Jed every morning. And uh, just before I would head to teach at the school I was working at, I would take Jed, and Jed was just this mongrel. We, we, uh, we uh, rescued him. He'd been thrown out into the streets in the middle of the city, and he was in a dreadful state. And they kind of brought him back to life, as it were. And, and Jed was just this gentle nature and uh, just a, a wonderful dog. And we used to take him, and he used to have a favorite ball, and I would throw his ball, and you could see him running off into the undergrowth. And, and he was just a joy to have around. And we, still, we actually have a picture of Jed in our house at home, and he was just one of those dogs that I'm sure all of you could think, yeah, there was just a special dog when I was growing up, or a special dog that just seemed to have a character and a personality that was unusual. Jed was that dog. And then we got called to come to Canada, and, uh, and so we still had Jed. And so I wasn't sure what to do with Jed. Um, so we decided that as the time was coming, we were wrestling with what to do with him. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to take him on one really long walk to think things through and to figure out what to do with him. So I opened the door, Jed would jump into the car, we would drive off, and I drove and drove and drove as far into the kind of the North Wales countryside as I could get, and Kane got out, and then we walked and we walked and we walked, and I had his dart ball, and, and I was throwing his ball, and thought, okay, that's, that's long enough. And so we came back to the car, and I had the, his ball, and I threw the ball as hard as I could, and Jed whipped after it, he ran straight through, and I jumped in my car and drove off. No, I didn't. I know somebody who did that, and that's a whole other story. 
I did not do that. Please hear me. I did not do that. Because I've told that story before and it's come back and people have gone, I heard that you threw a ball and jumped in the car and left a dog wandering around in the wilderness. No, I did not. No, I didn't. However, here's my point. As shocked and horrified as you were that I could even imagine that scenario. By the way, Jed is uh, living with a friend of ours in North Wales. He's actually a vicar and he's getting spoiled rotten. Trust me, I visited him a couple of years ago. As horrified as you were at the outcome of that story, if I change the story a bit and put a person who is in your experience or your lifetime, you could think of some people, you'd be quite happy for that to be. Some people you would be very happy to leave behind. In fact, some of you might have a long list. Because most of our challenges in life, if you actually think about it, are often connected to someone. People challenges, people problems. If we could just get rid of that one person, if I could just throw a ball, and this one person would run after it, and I could jump in my car and drive away and never see them again, some of you are like, yeah, no, that's fine. Dog, no. Person, yes. Let me give you a list, Glenn. Could you make it happen? Either somebody in your life right now, somebody in your past, So many of our problems and challenges and stresses are connected with a person or a group of people. And what's interesting about this chapter, and I've said to you in the past few weeks, Mark collects stories through Peter. This this could be called the the gospel according to Peter because Mark is Peter's scribe. This is Mark collecting stories. It's not a chronological process. And he puts all these stories together for a certain theme. And the theme of this chapter, as you're going to see, is how does Jesus respond to difficult people situations? How does Jesus respond to difficult Jesus situations? We're going to get to that first point in just a second. How does he respond? Because Jesus, the Bible says, is the, is the essence and the beauty of God. It says that in Hebrews. So if you want to know how God responds to someone or some people, you look at Jesus. How does Jesus do it? And the Gospel of Mark is filled, especially chapter 3, with how does Jesus respond to difficult people. And so as we work through this, you're going to see three scenarios, and I will guarantee that Many of you, I should say all of you, are going to resonate with at least one, maybe all of them. But definitely at least one. And if you listen in and make some notes and, and maybe re-listen to the message, then, and, you, and you ponder and you meditate and you think about the principles we're going to pull out, I can give you a guarantee, according to Ephesians 1, in the Holy Spirit, I can give you a guarantee that your life will be, will be so much more enriched. I don't know about you, but that sounds good. So the first thing that I want us to see is how does Jesus deal with busyness or pressure when it comes to other people? How does Jesus deal with busyness and pressure? Before we jump in, I could ask now, many of you I know would put your hand up and go, yes, I am way too busy and I'm under stress and under pressure and it's connected with other people or it's connected with the situation that I'm in. So Mark chapter 3 and verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. 
When the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So you need to understand, first of all, we're talking about throngs of people surrounding Jesus. You read the Gospels, you'll see that wherever Jesus goes, great crowds follow him. There's pressure, there's stress just physically. I don't know if you've been in a crowd. Like We were on Canada Day weekend a few years ago in downtown Vancouver, and there's just this mass, and you get carried along. It's, it's frustrating, it's, 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 it's stressful, it's difficult. But you see, Jesus has a plan B. Jesus has this plan as to what happens when the crowd gets too busy. And you'll see in verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat. Uh-huh. See? Have a boat ready for him. Probably Peter's boat. Ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed so many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So this group of people, word had got out that Jesus was healing. And and they had no medical uh, system. They had no health insurance. You get sick, you die. That's that's the way people uh, expected life to be. And so if they heard that Jesus was able to heal, crowds of people thronging around him in order to get healed. And you know what I love about this passage is how it it shouts out the humanity of Jesus. We have this image of Jesus, I think, sometimes that is actually more divine than it is human. Jesus was, the Bible says, fully man and fully God. And and there are evidences all the way through the gospel of Jesus reacting in a human way. He gets tired. He gets hungry. And we can see in this passage, he's like, okay, this crowd is just getting too much. I need a plan B. Peter, get your boat. Get the boat. I need an escape route. See, Jesus understands the demands on your life because he's lived through more pressure and more stress than you and I could even cosmically imagine. Not only physically as he's living his life, but also when he's hanging on the cross, the pressure and the stress that he felt with every sin and the past before Jesus, present at Jesus, and all the sins of the future of those who believe in Christ on him. The curse of sin itself on Jesus while he's on the cross. That pressure, that stress. He knows what stress is like. See, the scripture tells us very clearly all through about how we should deal with stress. So let me make a statement to you. For those of you who are feeling under stress, stress comes as a result of what you are not doing rather than what you are doing. So you are not doing something and that's creating stress in your life. And some of you might be thinking, okay, Glenn, I don't need another thing to do. That's the reason I'm so stressed because I've got so much I have to do. And now you're telling me that there are things that I am not doing that's creating the stress. It makes no sense, but stress comes and actually goes as a result of what we are not focusing on more than what we are. I love that Josh had the song about fixing our gaze upon Jesus. I mean, Josh didn't know the intricacies of what I was preaching on this morning, but Here's what we we do, and this is what creates stress. You see, good things can be the enemy of the excellent things that are in your life. 
See, there are so many good things that are going on in your life. You've got a good business. You've got a great family. You've, you've got good things going on. It's a good thing to be busy. In fact, the Bible says that we should be busy. If you're lazy, you don't deserve to eat. That's pretty blunt. You know, we, we should be busy. We should be working hard. That's all good, godly things. But when that becomes the main thing, it replaces the most excellent things, and then that creates stress. So good things can be the enemy of the excellent things in your life. A lack of focus on the excellent will actually create stress. Look at this, this passage from Luke chapter 10. But Martha was distracted with much serving. It's a good thing. It was a good thing what Martha was doing. And she went up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, don't you care? Isn't that interesting? I don't know about you, but if you look back in your journal, you reflect for a little while, and you look at times in your life when you have been most stressful, is it because you are focusing on what might be good things, but then you start blaming Jesus for feeling stressful? Well, if God did this, and God did that, and if this stopped, or if this person would just run off into the wilderness after the ball that I've just thrown, or whatever it might be, if all that could just line up, then then I wouldn't be feeling so bad. Lord, do you not care? I've prayed that prayer. I've prayed that. God, don't you, don't you care? This is hard. This is, this is traumatic. This is causing me so much stress, my family so much stress. God, don't, don't you care? Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? I'm so busy doing all this stuff. Tell her then to help me. But what does Jesus do? He says, Lord, the Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha, Glenn, Glenn, you are anxious and troubled about many good things. That's me. I've added that in. He said, Hang on, you shouldn't be doing that. It's okay. I'm not printing it and releasing it as a Bible. You are, you are troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. One thing. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. What had Mary done? What's that one thing that is necessary? Can I tell you? What is Jesus' response in the middle of busyness and stress? What's, What's his response? He gets in the boat. Doesn't he? He gets in the boat. He says, Peter, have a boat ready because when it gets stressful, I need to get in the boat. And you see, here's what I want you to do. I want you to see this as an image. The cross is moving. That's all right. It won't fall. The metaphor in this, I could just preach on what's going on. The cross is moving while the boat is... But he stood in the boat. Why, Why did he stand in the boat? He stood in the boat because this was his way of getting out of the stressful situation. Here's what I want you to think about. As you look through the Gospels, you will see Jesus getting into the boat. He'll get into situations where he will disappear, he'll withdraw, he will get away, he will move away from the stress in order to focus on the Father. You see, what is the one necessary thing? The one necessary thing is getting into the boat, withdrawing, getting close to the Father. What is the good portion? It's getting into the boat, withdrawing, getting to the Father, having an escape route, getting out. And over and over through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus dealing with busyness and pressure by withdrawing. He's saying, this is a good thing, but I have a more excellent thing. 
And in this situation, it looked like a boat. I have an excellent thing. You see, Jesus made a choice. All through the Gospels, you will see, if you read between the lines, that Jesus many, many times, please listen to this, many times walked past people who needed healing without healing them. I'll, I'll prove it to you just, in, just for with one example. When Peter and John were heading into the temple after Jesus went back to the Father, he, they, he, do you remember the, the story of the, the paralyzed man at the temple gates and Jesus, uh, Peter's shadow falling on and, 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 and all these different healing situations? He said, I don't, what I don't have, I don't have money, but what I do have, get up in the name of Jesus. That man, it says in Acts, had been laid at the temple gates daily. Probably since he was a child, Jesus would have walked past that man without healing him. Why? Because he knows the story. He knows Peter and John's going to come along. He knows that it's going to bring him and his father more glory at the timing that he decides. You see, Jesus walked away. See, some people remain unhealed and he was okay with that. Does it mean that he liked that? I doubt it. But he had a bigger vision of the story than he did in the moment. So what do we learn from this? And this, is, this is a word for some of you. Every need and demand placed upon us, even if they are good, is not necessarily God telling us to do it. I got a revelation about a year ago when I wasn't feeling too well, and God said very simply, he, he, he said this, Glenn, you're not the Holy Spirit. Well, yeah, duh. But I was thinking like I could fix stuff. And actually, sometimes I just have to say, no, I can't do that. I can't be there. I can't go there. I can't do that. It's a good thing. But I have to make a tough choice in order for a more excellent thing. So the question for you and I are this, is what is it that's going on in your life now that's a good thing, but you're making it the ultimate thing to the detriment of the more excellent thing that is necessary for you to feel a peace and calm in Christ? Does that mean we all go and live in caves and be hermits? As fun as that would be for a couple of days? No. But finding that place where you can get into the boat, and you know what? As I stood in that, it rocked around. It wasn't easy. I had to kind of balance myself. Some of you were thinking, oh, please let him fall. I know. I still love you. But sometimes standing in the boat is actually not easy. Withdrawing is not easy. But you have to do it. Number two, how does Jesus deal with being let down by others? Oh, friends, this is a, this is a significant point for some. Mark chapter 3, verse 13, uh, sorry, verse 19. This is after the passage where, where we're introduced to the, uh, the disciples that Jesus is calling. And then it says in verse 19, and this is a significant little group of words. It says this, Judas Iscariot and Judas Iscariot. See, Mark doesn't leave it there. Who betrayed him? <laughs> By the way, just in case you forgot, Judas Jesus chose Judas. Remember him? He's the one who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Yeah, him. Jesus chose him as well. Why did Jesus choose Judas? 
Again, it's because he knows the bigger plan, the bigger story. But if we really believe that the Bible says about Jesus empathizing with us, that he's been through everything we've been through, then he also needed to experience deep and significant betrayal. I cannot imagine what it must have been like for Jesus to have been been betrayed by Judas or been betrayed by Peter when he stood around a fire with a little girl. I don't know him. Or betrayed by the crowds that left him halfway through his ministry when he said some difficult things. Or by the disciples who run off in the garden. You see, all these acts of constant betrayal that Jesus actually experienced and empathizes with us because maybe someone has injured you very, very deeply. Maybe you're sat here this morning and just the mere hearing of a person's name that is the same as this person's name from the past just makes your stomach clench. Maybe you're driving along and a song comes on and a flood of memories come back from a time when somebody let you down so deeply you didn't think you were going to recover. Maybe you go into a shop and you smell something. See, some of you may not even know what I'm talking about, but some of you know that there's little triggers that go on in our life that just bring back a flood, sometimes of bitterness and hatred towards somebody who has so deeply let you down, you don't know whether you're ever going to be able to forgive them. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with deep betrayal? See, Jesus shows us how to deal with pressured circumstances. He says, get in the boat. How do you deal with people who have betrayed us and injured us deeply? See, in verse 20, it says Jesus went home. It's the second time Mark mentions that Jesus has got a home, by the way. You know, when the guys were, were, were crushing through his roof to get to Jesus, that was likely to be Jesus' home. Because it says we were home. So, you know, putting two together, home. Don't need to be a Greek scholar. So he went home, and the crowd gathered again. So they could not even eat. And when his family, Jesus' family, his own family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. So not only is Mark highlighting Judas as a betrayer, he's now going, oh, and by the way, his family thought he was mental. And they actually wanted to seize him and take him away because he thought he was a madman. Have you had family let you down? Where the people, the people in the world that should be standing so close to you in times of trouble and difficulty, they just let you down. Or they lie, they deceive, they walk away. See, how do you respond to betrayal? Well, what we can do is we can become discouraged, we can become damaged, we can not trust, we can build walls, we can isolate ourselves, we can not go back to church ever. You know, I have counseled people who even looking at the word church brings up bitterness because of something that has happened to them in a past church. You know, you're never going to find a perfect church, but there are some churches that seem to go out of the way to hurt and damage people. But the answer is not to stop going to church or not go to a community group or not have relationships or or not uh, connect yourself with people through fear of being hurt again. How should we respond when we were betrayed? What does Jesus do? Nothing. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't go, yeah, well, but. Let me tell you a a thing or two about. No, he just goes quiet. 
And time again and time and time again through the scriptures, you'll find Jesus accused of things that are, are so bad and wrong and lying. He stood in front of Pilate and Pilate is railing and he says, what is truth? And truth, the, the way, the, the truth is stood right in front of him. Jesus Christ and Peter and Pilate is looking past him. Well, what is truth? What does Jesus do? Just goes quiet. You know why? He's not interested in his own reputation. So here's, I could preach on this for a couple of weeks, but so I'm just going to throw a few statements, and I want you to think about them, write them down. Is it not possible that the reason that we're feeling so bitter and so hurt and so angry is not because of righteous reasons, but because of pride reasons? That we have been slighted. How dare they? I've been there. I've felt that. And I've had to come to the conclusion that I'm more concerned about my own reputation and pride than I am about doing the godly thing that is often exactly what Jesus did, which is absorb the pain on the cross. Because for you to forgive somebody, you have to absorb the pain. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is by making sure you get in the boat on a regular basis and withdraw and gaze upon the Father Because Jesus knows the bigger story. He's able to absorb the pain because he knows the bigger story. Why? Because he's often withdrawing, connecting with the Father. He trusts in God's story and then he moves on. I say this lovingly as your pastor, but some of you just need to move on. Stop thinking about it. Stop dwelling on it. Maybe, and I believe in good spiritual counsel, Maybe you just need to stop getting the counseling and kind of spinning on the thing. Start doing what the counselor has said and move on. Yeah, but Glenn, you don't understand. And you know what? You're probably right. I don't. But looking at the scripture, there seems to be this regular theme that we trust in God's story, not our own reputation, and move on. Stop talking about it. Some of you just want to talk about it. Yeah, but... It just brings it all up. Stop talking about it. Switch the radio off. Don't go into the shop that smells like them. You know? That sounds awfully flippant, Glenn. You don't understand. And I have a deep faith and belief that the Holy Spirit is enabled, who is the ultimate counselor to bring healing in your life as we spend more time in the boat. Trust in God's story and move on. When you withdraw and you focus on the excellent, you're reminded of his story. You know, bad things happen when we get out of the boat. I've said this story before, and, um, and you're going to get that. Once you've been in the church six years with a pastor, you're going to hear one or two stories. Sorry, but it's a good one, <laughs> I think. I was uh, fishing with my friend, Phil, um, many years ago on Indian Arm River, and it's beautiful, and we'd been, we'd be, we had a bigger boat than this, and we were dragging it over rocks and, and different areas as the shallows of the river, and we were aiming. It was, it was uh, pink salmon season. It's every other year in the lower mainland, and so we were going fishing. We used to do a lot of fishing for salmon, and I was looking forward to it. It was great, but we went into this deep part of the river, and, uh, and Phil was, was, um, was giving us direction. He was on the motor, and it was good, and my job was to stand. It was a bigger boat than this. It was like a rib. It was, it was uh, not a canoe, but my job was to stand or sit at the front and tell him if we were heading towards rocks and so he could avoid it. And I could see that there was a rock heading in our general direction that, that I thought, okay, we need to avoid that. So I said, Phil, you know, I can't remember, is it, you know, I'm not going to tell you the 
I'm not going to tell you lies and say, you know, I was, I was shouting starboard or port or anything. It was more just yelling right or left and, you know, not very nautical. But, you know, go right, go right, go right or left. And, and that was my job. And so there was this rock. I could see the tip of this rock coming towards us. And we were just, no matter how hard he was trying to go right, he, we were going towards it. And I knew that the river was, was pretty shallow because I'd been in and out of the boat quite a bit. So I thought, well, that's fine. I'll just hop out of the boat and I will push us away from the rock. It was a beautiful day. What could go wrong? So what I did was I didn't actually uh, um, judge the depth of the river very well because it's actually quite difficult. When you clear water, it's hard to tell whether something is this deep or significantly more. And so what happened was, is that I, I, as we're getting, I, I put my hand on top of the rock to push us away. And, and I also was going to kind of hop out of the boat in order to push the boat out of the way. That was the plan. Except the river was deeper than I expected. So my foot went further down than I thought. And my leg, therefore, went further higher than I thought. That was still stuck in the boat. At the same time, my hand slipped off the top of the rock. Because rocks got slippy in a river. Who knew? And I, I slipped off the rock, and the rock hit me right there, right in the chestuses. It was really, really sore, and I went right under. So I got this cracking pain in my chest. The boat went into the right, and so I come up expecting some deep sympathy from my friend, Phil, who was in the boat. For those of you who do anything with those guys will know what I'm talking about in the room. But if you hurt yourself around other guys, their first response is never sympathy. It's always to laugh. Doesn't matter how bad the injury is, they actually have to hold it in and then sympathy comes out. Or they just don't bother holding it in, it just blurts out, you know, and, and that's what Phil had done. Bad things happen when you get out of a boat, is what I learned that day. Especially when you don't know what it is you're getting into. Can I tell you? Bad things happen when you get out of the presence of God. You will find that you'll become more bitter, more angry, more stressed. The more time you spend in the boat, the more time you withdraw, the more time you spend with Jesus, the less likely you're going to walk away with deep chest heart pain when somebody hurts you. Number three, and finally, how does Jesus deal with blasphemy? I'm going to fly through this really quick, but this is an important thing to camp on, especially for young adults, so I seem to get this question quite a lot. Verse 22, and the scribes who came from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. And he, uh, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables. Now, listen, this is important. Jesus doesn't avoid this. He hits this head on. See, before he's avoided accusations, not this one. Isn't that interesting? You can call me anything you like, but you don't get to call me this. How can Satan cast out Satan, Jesus said? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus is saying, look, what you're saying is ridiculous. How can Satan attack Satan? Have you not seen that everything I've been doing has been to kind of rail against the kingdom of Satan? And now you're saying that I am Satan? What you're saying makes no sense. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever, listen, whoever blasphemies blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, 
but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I've heard people say, I'm afraid I've committed the unforgivable sin. I have heard people say that a number of times. They're worried about, have I committed the unpardonable sin, is another term that it's, it's called. Jesus makes it really clear. He says, you can sin against the Father, you're going to get forgiven. You sin against the Son, you'll be forgiven. You sin against the Holy Spirit, you will not get forgiveness. So this is quite an important thing to think. Well, what is it that is sinning against the Holy Spirit? How do we avoid that? How do we make sure that we're not sinning against the Holy Spirit? Because it would lead to unforgiveness. How do we know if somebody else has sinned against the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're worried about a loved one. Maybe they've, and they're not going to get forgiven, they're not going to become a Christian. What does it mean? Well, it's very simple, actually. If you look at the context, the context is, it's attributing the work of God, Jesus' work, to Satan. That's the context. It's a stretch, friends, to say that the context is around conversion. That the unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus Christ and the gospel. It's a bit of a stretch. But even so, even if you want to put that in, that, that's okay. But it's essentially, if somebody is saying, looks at the kingdom of God and attributes it to the spirit of Satan. Some commentators would say that it's not a, a, a sin that is particularly rife these days. Some would say that that particular sin was for the Pharisees at that moment. But what can we learn from it? Whenever there's a dismissal of the power of Christ, when there's a lack of submission to Jesus and all his work, when there's a rejection outright of God, you can question, you can doubt, you can research, you can pray, you can struggle, you can be confused. That's all good. But when you start attributing the power of Christ in people's lives to Satan, that's unforgivable. J.C. Ryle said this, those who are most concerned are most unlikely to have committed it. So if you're wondering, going, man, have I ever, is that me? You wouldn't even consider it. So really for us, we just need to know that God has provided for our salvation in his son Christ that there are supernatural events that happen in our lives now that we can contribute to Jesus that we lift him up, we make much of him, and then you are going to be on a very safe and solid ground. But what about our loved ones? I wouldn't be too concerned for the same reason that we shouldn't be concerned because of, again, the story of God. It's up to him when and who and how and all those beautiful things. We can just rest assured in that. So here's what I want us to notice, though, here. Jesus goes after this. He doesn't let it lie. You see, I just said that Jesus goes quiet when it's about him and his personal reputation. But Jesus opens his mouth and goes after this. Why is that? What's the difference here as opposed to many of the times in the gospel when Jesus just goes quiet? Why is it that Jesus defends vehemently the kingdom of God? It's because the kingdom of God itself is being attacked. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter what people think about us. It matters hugely what people think about the kingdom and the gospel. He defends the way. He defends 
the gospel. He defends the kingdom of God. He defends the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, we need to be in the habit of doing the same thing, lovingly and kindly. Because remember, Jesus was invited to parties with people who, would, for some of you, would make your skin crawl. You wouldn't want anything to do with the type of people that Jesus hung out with and partied with. So Jesus somehow stood for truth while being able to be surrounded by people who weren't living out that truth. But he was strong in the defense of the gospel. So things like this. Well, it doesn't matter what you believe, we're all going to the same place. True, if you're talking about the judgment seat of God. Yeah, we are all ending up there. Not true when it comes to Jesus being the only way. You stand up for that truth. Well, all religions are the same. Not true. Well, as long as you do what you think is right, then you'll be fine. Not true. These aren't situations we go quiet in. These are situations where we lovingly and gently and kindly speak the truth and defend. Always be ready for an answer for the hope that is within you, the scripture says, in a loving and kind and gentle way. So God doesn't go quiet here. We actually, friends, need to stand up and speak truth. Not to defend ourselves, but to defend the gospel. To have hope in the gospel. Does that make sense? So this week, some of you are going to be in a workplace where the gospel is challenged. What are you going to do? Well, let's just go quiet. Maybe Christianity will ooze out of my pores and they'll just somehow become Christians. Maybe they'll notice that I don't steal stuff. Maybe they notice that I'll only have one glass of wine at lunch. Maybe they notice that I don't watch our restrict, restricted movies and I don't cuss and swear. And that maybe somehow all that will just package together and they'll be convicted of their sin and come to Christ. It doesn't work like that. Friends, at some point you're going to have to open your mouth. You defend lovingly. Yeah, but they might not like me. You know, the scripture says something about that too. Yeah, you're probably right. They probably won't. In fact, they might hate you. But you know, Jesus marked the way in that. Are we willing to stand on the truth and lovingly declare the truth in front of people who may disagree with you? We've seen great examples in our own culture of people who do not know Jesus willing to stand up for their truth protesting and everything else, and they are vehement, they're adamant, they're loud. Are are we willing to be lovingly, gently, kindly the same way? So here's what Jesus has shown us, or Mark has shown us in this passage. First of all, with stress, we have to willingly say no and withdraw and get in the boat. With betrayal... We need from a position of standing in the boat, trusting God's story, and move on. Maybe to stretch the metaphor a little way, paddle away. Just watch out for those rocks. And thirdly, with blasphemy, we lovingly and gently defend the gospel. All of these things are made possible by our position in Christ because of the cross. You see, this morning we gain all our strength and all our power from what Jesus Christ did on the cross. 
And he says, come and, 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 and be those ministers of reconciliation with the, with the power of the Holy Spirit that I have given you. Come and be that agent of truth in our culture. Be like me. Be me in this community. And we can come with confidence to the cross. And here's what I was praying about this morning. And I want to finish with this. Maybe it's been a long time since some of you clambered it back into the boat. You've been battling in the middle of that crowd all by yourself. And just when you seem to deal with one thing, something else comes up and something else comes up and something comes up. And you're struggling with betrayal and you're struggling and you're struggling. Can I encourage you this morning as the team come and lead us in worship? I want to I encourage you to get it back in the boat. There are times when we know this is not that same picture of Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water. I'm not talking about risk and faith. I'm talking about solitude, peace, gentleness. Come who are weary and heavy laden and just sit with me. When was the last time you did that and put time aside to do that? And it is a risk to do that. Maybe you feel you haven't got time. The more stressed, the busier you are, the longer you need to spend in the boat. Let's pray. Father, I know that I can stand here and represent all in this room when I say that God... I need your help. I need your strength. That I cannot do what you have called me to do without that. And Father, forgive me for the times when I clamber out of the boat thinking that I can do this. And Lord, I pray now that as we just focus on you for a few minutes, Lord, I pray that that will just lay a foundation for the rest of the week. Lord, that as a church we would put that time aside that we need of solitude and withdrawal to, as we've already sung, Lord, to fix our attention upon you. And I thank you, Lord, that your promises are so clear, so beautiful for those who do that. So, Lord, I pray that as we sing that we will reach for that boat. We will reach for that escape. Father, I pray for those in the room who are struggling with betrayal and being let down by others. God, I pray that they would find peace and comfort in you. That, Lord, you say vengeance is yours. So, Lord, I thank you that your story will deal with every hurt and pain that we've experienced. God, give us the boldness to stand upon the truth and willingly open our mouths to give answer. And God, I pray that you would enable us to stay quiet when we need to, when it comes to personal reputation or pride, that we'd spend less time defending ourselves and more time representing you well. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord.